Hi, welcome to The Church Split. My name is Will, and let's talk about uh, the Trinity. Let's talk about that. But first, before we talk about the Trinity, let's talk about my glasses. <laughs> I'm wearing glasses today, and I'm hoping that my lighting system doesn't create too much of a glare. I do notice for some. Uh, we'll see what ends up happening. Hopefully not too bad. I want to see how this video goes with them because it makes it easier for me to read my notes without stumbling over verses. But at the same time, I don't want things to look weird. So uh, we'll see. what we'll, we'll go from here and see what happens. Okay, so... Thank you for joining me on my ride of adventure, so, of glasses. I'm getting old. What do you want? Anyway, so the Trinitarian doctrine is a doctrine that has come under fire a lot recently, and I'm part of a lot of apologetics groups. I'm part of a, a lot of different, I have a lot of relationships with different pastors and whatnot, and I've realized that the doctrine of the Trinity is actually a lot more controversial than I had originally thought, and I actually had to... Uh, privilege of meeting with a Jehovah's Witness and being able to discuss this with them over a long period of time, and they actually ended up accepting the doctrine of the Trinity and fully leaving uh, Jehovah's Witnesses' teaching. So that was really cool. But the problem is, is that I've noticed that more and more people seem to misunderstand what being a Trinitarian is. I've had some people go, well, I'm like, well, Jesus is God, and I'm like, yeah, and like, and God is God, I'm like, yeah, like, Jesus is God. There is no Trinity. And I'm like, and then they'll, what's funny is that they'll talk about the Holy Spirit and they'll talk about God and then they talk about Jesus and they describe, well, oh, it's God, but no, that's just God. There's no Trinity. I'm like, that's what we're saying. It's the Trinity. Um, so it, it's really funny. I think people tend to misunderstand this. So let's, let, um, so this is going to be a pretty thorough uh, video. So the, the thing is, some of my videos are going to be more quick and topical and some of them are going to be more deep dive. And today is going to be more of a deep dive and we're going to have a lot of scripture and all the emphasis in the scripture will be added by yours truly. So just keep that in mind. So the first thing I want to approach is paradigm doctrines. Paradigm doctrines are a thing that exists all throughout scriptures. And what do I mean by that? Well, it's like a paradox, right? And now a paradox might seem like a contradiction, but upon further study, you realize it's not a contradiction. So a contradiction is like calling us something like a square circle, and a paradox is something that seems as if it would be contradictory, but it really isn't. Um, like uh, dry ice, for example, right? So uh, that the whole the whole thing is is w as we dig into this, I hope you will understand that where I'm coming from, and this makes sense. So when we're talking about God's need, the Trinity is. Part of God's nature is a nature of part of the nature of who He is. So um, I, this is on. So it makes it hard to explain the Trinity well at a human level. Sometimes these things can be very, very difficult. So I think it's important for us to understand the fact that we're not always going to under, be able to understand God in His entirety. Like Isaiah fifty-five nine says, "This for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts." So God makes very clear. We're not going to understand everything about him. His thoughts are higher than us. And a God who is so easy for us to understand is hardly worthy of our worship, right? So uh, this, this happens all the time. So it's also not lost on Trinitarian Christians that the Trinity in and of itself is very paradoxical. There is one God, yet the one God has three persons with different functions. The Father is not Jesus, Jesus is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father. Yet, altogether, they are God. This would seem hilariously foolish 
unless you realize that many parts of scripture actually point to this, this same sort of reasoning. And the best uh, example of this is actually in salvation where we see like three things existing at once. Uh, in salvation, salvation is based on faith, right? This, uh, salvation is by grace through faith. When someone puts their faith in Christ, we oftentimes refer to them as being saved, right? Like, oh, I got saved when I was eight years old. And we say saved and we use a past tense for that. But the Bible actually makes clear that it's actually a bit more complex. It makes clear that we are saved now. We are not yet saved and we will be saved. So, and we see that right here. Okay, Hebrews 2, 8 through 9 says this, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection into him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So we see right here, he talks about being at present. We do not yet see, you know, there's a lot of a future thought here. Um, hopefully I don't keep beating up my mic here. This arm makes it complicated. Anyway, uh, at present, we do not yet see. And then it says, but we see him who for a little while was made a little lower than the angels. This is important. I think when we're talking about Jesus and his nature that it was okay for a little while, he was actually made lower than the angels. So I think that's important to mention. Also in 1 John 3, 2, he says, beloved, we are God's children now. So he's talking about present and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when we, that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Now, here's the thing. We as humans, we know that humans can't actually see the full glory of God. Uh, that's what's the whole thing with the Holy of Holies. And there's so many things about the human nature is so sinful in its current form. It cannot be in the presence of God. Even when Jesus revealed himself to Saul on the road to Damascus, it blinded Saul. So that's why he says, hey, what we will be has not yet appeared. Although we are God's children now, what we will be has not yet appeared. So we see a, a, something else existing there. So, And then Ephesians 2.6 says, and he, he raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places. And in Romans 8.30, it says, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And whom he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. So we see all these things happening at once again. Three multiple parts. There's a present, there's a future, and all this when it comes to just salvation alone. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, Christ, the wisdom and power of God, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, there's a present, it is the power of God. And we also see that the kingdom will come in Luke 11, 2, but we must receive the kingdom in Mark 10, 15, and the kingdom isn't currently not of this world, John 8, 36. So we see different aspects of the one thing. So you see this here? So this is important. Um, these verses above are only a few verses with which where we see paradigm doctrines taking place in scripture. Multiple things can be true at once. And I think it's important that we acknowledge that. Like multiple things can be true at once and exist at one time. It, do it doesn't always have to be either or. You know, we as Westerners, um, especially Europe and America, we're very much either or logic. And, and I think that's sound logic. And I think it's okay that way. Um, 
in many ways, but I, we oftentimes forget the fact that multiple things can be true at once. It's not just because this is true that now it eliminates everything else. Multiple things can be true. So what I want to do is take some time to like explore this a little bit. So what does it mean to be Trinity? Well, obviously it's hard for us to understand like God's nature is, you know, he has, he's eternal. He's outside of time and space or he has no beginning and no end. That's hard for us to understand. And just like we are mind, body, and spirit, and that's a topic for another time and how I can explore that philosophically with you if you'd like, but I believe that we are mind, body, and spirit. And that's the whole thing of love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. There's a, there's a little bit of that mentioned in there. So also we see in the Old Testament, we see a God of great power and you know judgment. There's a lot of love and grace there, contrary to popular belief. Um, and in the New Testament, we see a huge part of God, uh, a lot of grace and a lot of love, but we also do see a lot of judgment contrary to popular belief. So there is a lot of interesting, like ebb and flow in scripture. There's a lot of aspects of scripture that are true all at once. So this goes into, Hey, we have to have faith. And so we're not going to understand everything about God, but I do want us to make sure that we talk about a little bit why the Trinity is important. So the, why the Trinity is important is because one, it puts the framework of script. It creates a framework in scripture for us to understand. Well, if Jesus says, I and my father are one, well, and he, then he prays to the father. How can they be one? Yeah, he prays to them, but yet they're, but he is only a subordinate uh, completely. Like he's either a divine creature or like a, an archangel, Michael, if you're the Jehovah's witnesses, perhaps, or, you know, um, maybe the traditional Jewish idea is the fact that he's basically a perfect man that was born uh, and a perfect holy Messiah, but he is still 100% man and not divine as far as he is not God. So as a sinner, um, we sinners, we have a hard time sometimes grasping this, but I need you to understand the fact that because he was holy and perfect, he couldn't have been man. He couldn't be 100% man and only man. He had to have a divine nature because we all, as humans, are born with a sinful nature. We all have an inclination for that, right? Romans 3.23, for all have sinned. So it doesn't make sense that Jesus is without this divine nature. But a divine nature with zero temptation and one that would also, upon sacrifice, be able to satiate the holy righteousness of God. The only thing that would be able to satiate the holy righteousness of God would be something that's as holy and righteous as God. Therefore, God. So we, uh, this is important for us to understand why salvation works the way it does. Why are we told to have faith in Jesus? If Jesus is not God in the flesh, then why do we need to have faith in him? Uh, should our faith only then be in, you know, God alone in El Shaddai, if you will? So I think it's important that we talk about that and that we address this. This is why it's important because otherwise God's telling us to have faith in someone else who is not him. And in Hebrews 11 makes very clear that faith, salvation has always been through faith, even for Abraham and all of them. And Jesus was not around, okay? So they didn't put their faith and trust in Jesus. They put their faith and trust in Yahweh. So again, it doesn't make sense for us now to have to, okay, we have to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, right? So anyway... I say all that. So God, we have to remember, is omnipotent. He is omniscient. He has multiple functions even within his own being, much like our, ourselves with our mind and our body and our spirit. So the Father directs all things and is what we, we call the head of the Trinity. And yet Jesus is the Son at the right hand of the Father. He is our propitiation for our sins. 
And he took our sins all off of us and put upon his own shoulders. And the Holy Spirit, whom God uses to empower his people and guide his people, is the other half of that. So the, the three aspects of God in one, three persons in a single being. Now, the thing is, is that this is good. It's really hard to give you a good example without falling into modalism. And if I feel like if I say a modalist, uh, if I say a, if I say a modalist example, one of you guys are going to be on the other end looking at your phone or computer or whatever, going, "That's modalism, Patrick." And I'm going to try to avoid that. So, I mean, I've heard people use water. Like water can be ice, water, or steam. Like you know, ice, liquid, or or steam, and but it's still water. But at the same time, that is still switching different modes. So that was still more of modalism. So uh, Braxton Hunter puts it a good way. Uh, it's like a triangle. You know, there's three distinct points of the triangle, but it's all one triangle. I think that's a fair way to put it, without falling too many much into other fallacies. So um, anyway. The thing is, I really want to get through the Old Testament real fast uh, before the end of this video and before we start the next, uh, the next part of our series. So the Old Testament, we do know that the Old Testament kind of sent some hints as far as this Trinitarian doctrine, but it is not fully brought to fruition until the New Testament. But we do see hints of it in the Old Testament. So this next part of the video is going to be focused on the Old Testament uh, and the Trinity. And then we're going to move on into our other videos where we're going to address different parts of this. So first off, one of the biggest things that Trinitarians get called are polytheists, right? Well, you believe in multiple gods, and that is a complete misunderstanding of what Trinitarian doctrine is. In fact, when you talk to Jehovah's Witness, they will almost always describe a modalist uh, a view of things, which when God shows himself in different modes, uh, or they believe that we're polytheists and that we just believe in multiple gods. That is a complete misunderstanding of what we're saying. We are saying that the Bible makes very clear there is one God, but this one God has three persons distinct from each other within that God. So a singular God. The Bible makes clear that there is that only one God, and in Deuteronomy 4.35 says this, To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides him. And then in 6.4 he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 1 Kings 8.60, that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God, there is no other. Isaiah 46.9, remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. Isaiah 43, 10 through 11, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me, there is no Savior. Now, I'm going to park on this for a second. Now, I want, us to, I want to first acknowledge the fact that some Trinitarians take this too far, and they believe that if you do not acknowledge the doctrine of the Trinity, you are not saved. I don't believe that is actually fully accurate, because we're just simply told to have faith in Jesus Christ. The whole, so if you went to some Pacific island somewhere, and you gave the gospel to a young man, and let's say... You broke it down. You broke down theism real quick, an understanding of that worldview... You're able to segue right into the Christian God and then right into Jesus Christ and then right into the gospel and he accepts Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. And you're going, yes, that's awesome. But here's the question. Does he have to have a full-on understanding that Jesus was God in order for him to understand the fact that Jesus was a Savior? 
I don't think so. I, I think about, or, or I worked a lot in the deaf ministry and when you're leading a deaf person to the Lord, it can be really hard sometimes maybe to describe all of this, uh, especially depending on the situation or maybe a young kid's maturity or whatever. They might not be able to fully comprehend that Jesus is God, or they might not have a full understanding. Like if they found a, if some guy in the, in the middle of a mountain found a Bible and read it and goes, aha, and he didn't quite understand that Jesus was God in the flesh, I don't think that that somehow will deter his salvation. Salvation is not based entirely on what my intellectual level is or my intellectual understanding. My salvation is based on faith. And if I have faith in Jesus Christ. So I think that is important that we get that out of the way. And I can already hear half of it. I already hear all, like, all the buttons clicking off. Well, this guy's a heretic. But that's my personal belief. Take it or leave it. But anyway, this idea at Isaiah 43 says this, where he says, Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord God, and besides me there is no Savior. So besides God, there is no Savior. But we see in the New Testament that the Savior in Scripture is always referring to Jesus Christ in Luke 2.11, Acts 13.23, Acts 4.12, 1 John 4.14, and on, on and on and on it goes. He is the Savior of the world. So if besides God in the Old Testament there is no Savior, and then Jesus Christ becomes the Savior, it, it follows that Jesus Christ is God. Because besides God, there is no other Savior. So this is only reinforcing the fact that God and Jesus Christ are one. The Bible makes clear in this passage that there are no other gods and that Jesus is not just a God. If Jesus is just a God or a divine deity separate from God entirely, then it would contradict this very passage, the fact that God himself is the only Savior. So right here, we see that Trinitarian doctrine is reinforced. Now, I will also make clear that the Trinity in the Old Testament, as I mentioned, it is not clearly distinct as it is, as clearly distinct as it is in the New Testament. It is something that we see mostly in the Old Testament as hinted to. And this makes sense when you understand how progressive revelation works. God revealed himself and then the Pentateuch happened with Moses, the first five books of the Bible, and then the different prophets came and wrote, made their writings, and eventually people started understanding God more and more. Then there's the 400-year silent period, and then the New Testament took place where God fully reveals himself. So I think these are important. So anyway, as early as Genesis 1-1, we see the Trinity present. And I can already hear people locking their guns. What do you mean in Genesis 1-1? Well, right there, the word for God in the Hebrew is Elohim. Elohim means God Almighty, but this is a word that is used to describe God all throughout the Old Testament. And this word is always, when spoken of, as my understanding, whenever this word is used talking about the God of Israel, it is always used in its proper plural tense. So proper plural tense is important because plural. It means that there's a plurality to the God, plurality to God, meaning there is more to God than what maybe some people understood as. Whenever the word is used in a singular tense, it was always referring to an idol or a mighty judge. So this is also important. So we're seeing kind of a distinction here in the way the word is used. God even references himself in the plural pronoun of us in Isaiah 6, 8. He says, and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and whom will go for us? Then I said, here am I, send me. When it says, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Notice that he goes, whom shall I send and who will go for us? It's almost like he's referring to other people in the room. It could be other people in the room or it could be meaning the plurality of his being. 
Genesis 1.26 says this, Then God, Elohim, said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let him have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds and of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. He says right here, let us make man in our own image. And there are multiple interpretations to why he's using plural terms here. Some of uh, the, the typical... The traditional Jewish belief would be almost like he's referencing himself as a king, because sometimes kings uh, in old letters would refer to himself at, at, in a plurality. So, you know, we declare this. Um, but honestly, it makes sense if you understand the Trinity that, oh, yeah, of course, he'd be referring to himself as a plural. Um, he also refers to himself in the singular text later, right? He goes, he made man in his own image. So he goes, he made man in his own image, and then we made man in our own image. So we see a singularity, and uh, we, we see it being singular, and then we see it being plural. And I think it's important to recognize the fact that this we see God almost shifting in the way he's talking about himself. So two things, again, can be true at once. It's not necessarily contradictory. This plurality in which God refers to himself it allows for Trinitarian doctrine, but it does not allow for many other doctrines. Therefore, by God's own Hebrew name, we first see in scriptures that there is more to God than maybe what we originally thought traditional. And I think this might be one of those things where God was hinting to his own being. Also in Genesis 1, we see that the spirit was mentioned. In Genesis 1-2, it says, The earth was without form and void, and the darkness was over the face of the deep, and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Notice how it's not just God. He's saying the spirit of God. So there is another part happening here. There's another thing going on in here. Again, this shows that God is not just a powerful being. This shows that there is a, a, a Holy Spirit. There's a spirit involved here. And then we see the Son uh, references the God Almighty and the Spirit in the Old Testament. Check this out. In Isaiah 48, 16, it says, Draw near to me. Hear this from the beginning. I have not spoken in secret from the time it came to be. I have been here. I have been there. And now the Lord God has sent me and his Spirit. And the thing is, is that this verse is the Son referring to God Almighty, the Father, and the Spirit, which is the Holy Spirit. Or else we would get, or else who would uh, God be referring to here? And it's really important because uh, Jesus uses a lot of Isaiah's prophecies to say, this is me. And he uses this actually in Isaiah 61.1. Right here, this uh, says, The year of the Lord's favor, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. Again, Jesus references this. Later on in the New Testament, when he's speaking, uh, he says this. Luke 4.14. 4, and Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And notice how the Spirit is always referred to as like something separate. And a, and a report about him went through all of the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 61.1, was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. So this Jesus refer, making this passage, he referred to him. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of the sight of to the blind and to set the liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's 
favor. So notice he goes, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. So he's going, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. And then he talks about the Lord's favor. And again, these are all separate entities he's kind of referring to, but they all are dealing with that divine nature of God. So Jesus clearly refers to himself here as one with one with all these things. It's pretty clear when you keep reading these. The members of um, the members are distinguished from from each other in the Old Testament as well. The Lord, in capital letters, by the way, is always referring to God, the Father, Yahweh. So when you're going through this, when you ever see Lord in caps, just so you know, this is referring to the Lord, a God of Yahweh. So, and we also so we see the capital L O R D Lord is distinguished from Lord, you know, from Lord with. Out that, and I know this goes into the Hebrew Yahweh versus Adonai. And the Lord has a son. We see this in Psalms 2 7 and 11 through 12. The Spirit is also distinguished from Lord in Numbers 27 18, and God in Psalms uh, 51. Uh, Psalms 51. So the Son is distinguished also from the God the Father in Psalm 45 6 or 7 and Hebrews 8 through 9. In the New Testament, Jesus said he'd send a comforter and a helper. And we see this as the Holy Spirit finally coming to fruition. There are many hints of this in the of the Trinity in the Old Testament. And there is no clear picture, though, of the triune God entirely. Like, if you read the Old Testament, you would never come to that conclusion. Well, there is a confirmed plurality that we can get definitely go, well, there's seems to be talking about the spirit, and there seems like there's this other character mentioning, which is actually the son, but you don't really notice that, um, you know, until, unless you're paying close attention. And really, the only reason why we understand Isaiah 61, 1 referring to Jesus is because Jesus opened it up and went, hello, this was talking about me, by the way. Um, so we see a confirmed plurality to God. And I think this is part of that great mystery, that, that gospel mystery that Paul was referring to was not just the gospel, but why the gospel was able to happen in the first place, meaning Jesus had to be divine. And now I will admit when it comes to um, the Trinity that you'll notice that the Holy Spirit verses are much more on, I don't want to say necessarily vague, doesn't seem the right word for it, but that's what word that's coming to mind right now. But the Holy Spirit, the verses referring to the Holy Spirit is definitely the ones that have less expressed um, direct quotes. For example, there are direct quotes that refer to Jesus as God. And then, of course, God the Father is always referred to as God because Jesus says he's God. But when it comes to the Spirit, you just it's implied more than it is directly stated. So I just want to make sure I make clear that I'm aware of that part of the argument. But I think when you actually take all these verses and you start putting, comparing them, it really actually makes clear that the Spirit of God and the, the God the Son and the God the Father all coming together makes sense. So anyway, this is part one of our Trinitarian series. In our next video, we're going to be talking about the Trinity in the New Testament. Okay? So thank you for tuning in. Hope this was helpful. And if you have any questions or thoughts or comments about the Old Testament uh, Trinity, let me know in the comments below. Like, subscribe, and all that good stuff. And this has been The Church Split.